And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business, business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are working our way through a series called Shadows of Christ. We are looking at the stories of the Old Testament um, for the purpose of actually seeing how they foreshadow the hero of the story. Um, There's a single storyteller to all of human history, and we find the outline of that story in the Bible. And as we look at that, it's pretty incredible to see how events and people and things um, thousands of years in advance 
foreshadow God's ultimate plan to redeem and restore by sending a hero. And so this morning we get to look at um, Rahab, very interesting character. Before I get into that, though, let me, um, we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of housekeeping. There's an announcement um, that I want to make so that you guys are in the know. Trailhead is um, a church that is elder-led and member-engaged. And what that means is that we have um, a group of elders who, who lead the church, who make the key decisions for the church, uh, and ultimately l- lead the body. But those um, leaders are not disengaged from the body. Um, and we don't make decisions in a vacuum. It's incredibly important for us to engage the members of Trailhead Church, the people who call Trailhead Church home, as we work through difficult and challenging decisions. And as you guys know, we're in a season right now where we have some incredible challenges and opportunities in front of us. Um, And and so just kind of lay the groundwork, Cliff Notes version, if you haven't been tuned in or are new around here, um, we have a, 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 a lease with this space, which is awesome, but in any given... 30-day period, we can be asked to leave if the owner finds someone to lease it at full price. And God has protected this space. We've been here for almost three years, uh, and it's been an incredible place for us to grow as a church and and to gather as a a believing community. Um, There is, you know, there's somebody who's definitely interested in the space. Um, They're pursuing it. There's no, you know, we don't know if they're going to be able to get it. Um, The owner has to make some decisions. It's kind of a a weird deal. But what we do know is that God's ahead of us. So um, we're secure here for now. In fact, as secure as we've ever been in the sense that we know we have a lease and we know we're allowed to be here. We know there's interest outside. We also know that God has been prompting us for some time, predating this. God has been leading the leadership, prompting our hearts to say, man, you need to get ready. Some change is coming. And so you guys know we've already um, been talking about us kind of socking some money away specifically so that we can relocate. And, um, and part of that process has led us to a conversation with a church here in town that are, they're planning on moving outside of town. Um, and so they're going to be, their building's going to be coming up for sale. That conversation is moving forward. That's all I can tell you at this point. We don't have any solid leading. We're in a great conversation. Both sides um, want to see this thing happen. It's just a matter of whether it's a good time for them. Uh, and so they're working through that process now. But here's the deal. We got a lot of things that we need to deal with, which means the leadership is putting a plan in place so that we're not just left hanging, right? We don't want to be reactionary. We want to be proactive, but we want to engage you in that plan. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be having what we call focus groups. These are going to be groups, times for us to meet with small groups in the church. And we're going to do that through our community groups. Our community groups are Trailhead Church in small community, right? And if you call Trailhead home and you're not part of our community group structure, I highly encourage you to get involved. Um, the gathering is, is a great place for us to worship together and hear God's word together. But life transformation takes place best in small community where you're known and, and you get to know and people support you and you get to support others. And our community group structure is, is how we um, uh, help equip that to happen. So we encourage you to join if, if you haven't already. In two weeks, we're going to be meeting with each of our community groups to discuss the challenges and opportunities in front of us to kind of talk through these things. If you call Trailhead Home, and you are not currently in a community group, we want to give you an opportunity to enter into the conversation, okay? So that's kind of the big announcement for this morning, because if you're in a community group, you're going to have a date scheduled, um, and all that information will be coming through the leaders uh, of your group. But um, if you're not in a community group and you want to engage in this conversation, mark your calendar for two weeks from today, okay? Not this coming Sunday, but the Sunday after, July 28th, I think, um, and it's going to be at 3 o'clock, Okay, we're going to meet in this space 
for the purpose of discussing the challenges and opportunities, opening it up, answering questions, um, explaining the plan, um, just kind of exploring it, and making sure that you guys are engaged and have a voice in the process. We really want to listen. And, and for us to have that listen, we need to create small groups where we give you opportunity to, to engage and talk. Okay? All right, so mark a calendar for that. If you want to be involved in that, um, if you're in a community group, it'll be scheduled. If you're not, uh, we invite you to the... Uh, to the gathering two weeks from today at 3 o'clock. If you have more questions, go to Connection Point. We'll be happy to hook you up with more information, or you can always email me if you have questions. It's just steve at trailheadonline.org. Okay, our website address, it's on your bulletin. Um, and I'll be happy to, if I don't know the answers, I will forward you to somebody who does um, know the answers. So, all right, this morning we can talk about Rahab. Rahab's an interesting character. Um, the very first words used to describe her, Rahab the prostitute. Um, often, you know, in a lot of the older versions, she was Rahab the harlot. So from, that's what rings in my head, Rahab the harlot, right? Um, and so we're going to unpack her story a little bit. Before we do, though, let me help set the stage. Humans have always had ways of categorizing and value, valuing other humans. Um, we just do it. Um, you look at somebody and, and you see the way they dress, you see their hair, their clothing, uh, you see what they drive. Um, you listen to the way they talk. You hear their accent or their dialect. Uh, um, you find out where they went to school. You find out what they've chosen to do for a living. And, and you judge them. And you're like, no, 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 I'm super tolerant. That's awesome. You still do it. Let's just be honest. We all do it, right? It's, it's this human thing. And you may not like that you do it, but we all do it. We have this way of categorizing people. And we have this way of kind of figuring out where we stand in comparison to them. And, and, and um, it's just something that, that is part of the way we work, right? There's always this insider-outsider thing. Um, and we see this actually, if, to kind of set the stage, we see this most clearly in certain societies where it's, it's um, they actually, it's stratified, right? The society itself is stratified. Think of India, okay? In India, you have what's called the caste system. And, and in the caste system, caste is a, uh, comes from a Latin word that means heritage or race. You're born into your caste, Okay, there's no mobility into or out of a caste. It is based purely on birth, and it's actually rooted in their religious uh, understanding, the Hindu understanding of karma, right? When you're born, you're not born by accident in their, in their line of thinking. They say that you are reincarnated from previous series of lives, and whatever you're born into is, in fact, either the reward or the punishment of those previous lives. And so when you're born into a caste, that's just where you land, right? There's no um, uh, vertical... Uh, mobility in a society like that. And so there's four main castes in um, the, uh, the Indian system. Um, the priests and the teachers are at the very top. They're the most enlightened. Uh, so if you're born into the priest-teacher class, you're, you're going to be someone who teaches and leads and, and, and enlightens others. The next caste is the kings, warriors, administrators. They organize, they conquer, they lead. The ones after that are the skilled um, uh, administrators, the managers, um, and, and skilled labor. And below them, or even a larger class, they're the unskilled labor, um, the folks that just kind of do grunt work um, for the most part. But those are the four castes. And if you're born into that caste, that's where you're going to be, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. There's a fifth caste, but it has no name. In fact, it goes by a name that simply means the fifth. These, this group of people um, are actually born out of the caste system. That's where we actually get the phrase outcast. They, they were born out of the system whereby we classify people. They are the lowest of the low. 
they are known um, commonly as the untouchables. And, and India has made um, a lot of reforms um, over the recent years to try to protect the untouchables, to bring in some human rights for the untouchables. And, and there's definitely been some advancements. But that doesn't change the fact that in that society, folks that are born into this caste, if you want to call it that, the non-caste caste, the outcast, they are seen as the most disposable of society. Uh, for them to make a living, they do the things nobody else wants to do. They do the dirtiest jobs. They do the most menial labor. Um, they are not given homes. They live on the outskirts of society. They often find their, their food and their uh, subsistence um, by going through the trash. Um, they are alone. They are unprotected. They are despised. And what's interesting is they become invisible. They become invisible. You'll have people walking by them and see their suffering, but they don't see their suffering. They see their degradation, but they don't see their degradation. They see their, their um, uh, uh, pain, but they don't even see it. The untouchables, they're on the far outside of the center of society. They become disempowered. They become abused, and they become invisible. Now, not every society is going to be as rigidly structured in the way they deal with outsiders as, say, India, right? A society like ours, we, we call America a classless society. And the reason we say that is because you're not born into a rigid class structure. Obviously, we have classes. You've got lower class, middle class, upper class, right? Um, those are, those are th- terms that we use a lot. Uh, in fact, one of the great blessings of the economic system of the West is the birth of the middle class, this idea that there is upward mobility, that people can improve their lot, um, and it's part of what we call the American dream, that sense that, that you're not born into a rigid structure. You actually have the ability to do something to change the experience of your life. And that's actually, that's a great thing, right? It's a great thing. One of the blessings of the influence of the West. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that there are still outsiders, that there is inside and outside, right? That there are people that live on the fringe that we still see not as rigidly, but just as clearly as untouchable. People that are without dignity, without power, without influence, and often without a voice. People for whom dignity um, has been robbed. And, and that's an outgrowth of our hearts. It's an outgrowth of our hearts, not our economic system. Our economic system is an outgrowth of our hearts as well. We all know what it means to be an insider, and we all know what it means to be an outsider. And we hate to be outsiders, right? We hate to be those that are alienated. We hate to be those that are without influence. We hate to be those that, are, that, are, that our voice is taken away from us, that we are robbed of influence. One of the worst things that can happen to an individual is to be completely ignored. It's even worse than abuse. You don't even exist. I don't even see you, right? We all know what... Uh, uh, how incredibly dehumanizing that experience can be. But it happens every day on the playground to the boardroom, right? You guys remember the playground? Did it not happen, right? Everybody knew uh, where the circle was. And as kids, we all wanted to be in the circle, not out of the circle. You wanted to be one of the kids who were accepted, not one of the kids who were rejected. You wanted to be invited into the games, not alienated from the games, right? And it happens just as powerfully in the boardroom, right? And some of you have grown up deeply, deeply driven, 
to get on the inside because of your fear of that alienation. You have this, we call the inner circle idolatry. You know, you just think if I can just get to the inner circle, then I'll be worthwhile. Then I'll be loved. Then I'll be valuable, right? Whatever the circle is, you're constantly looking. Who's the, who's the, you know, and then we got the anti-inner circle idolatry thing going on where people are like, I will never go to the, right? So whoever, whoever they term as the popular people, they become the bad guys and we create our own inner circle. But we're always creating circles, Right? We're always creating circles of acceptance, and, and the people that are outside of that circle are rejected. Here's something that's not going to be incredibly surprising to you, hopefully. God doesn't see it the same way we do. God does not measure worth like we do. We measure worth based on what you look like, what you wear, what you value, what you can do for me, how you make me feel about myself, um, how much we have in common with each other. Um, whether or not you drain my emotional and financial account. Um, But God doesn't measure worth like we do. And being an insider with God has absolutely nothing to do with success. I'm going to drive that home hopefully this morning. Being an insider with God has absolutely nothing to do with being a success. It has everything to do with faith. It's a completely different paradigm than most of us generally operate in. So today we're going to kind of take a look at that by looking at the story of a woman who was an outcast in her own society, a woman who was uh, living on the, on the fringe, on the outskirts, Rahab, the prostitute. All right, last week we talked about Joshua. And we talked about how Joshua had inherited the mantle of leadership from Moses. He was supposed to take the nation of Israel into the promised land. And, and this was the second time they were going in, and, and his job as a leader was to be strong and courageous, that his courage was going to, in fact, strengthen the nation to accomplish what they failed to do the first time because of their cowardice and lack of faith. He was going to lead in faith and the confidence of faith and thus uh, stiffen the spine and strengthen the hands of an entire nation so that they would um, follow God. And so the first city that they were going to have to take out was the city of Jericho. And and we find in in Joshua chapter 6 that He does that, right? He leads the marching band into battle, and uh, they circle the city seven times. They clap their hands, sing a little bit, and and God delivers, right? God gives them the victory. It's a really kind of crazy battle scheme, but but that's how God said it was supposed to be done. In Joshua 2, the text we read today, the battle hasn't happened yet. Joshua is still preparing. He's gathering the information he needs to lead his people successfully. And so in Joshua 2, we see spies being sent into the land. Okay, so take a look at Joshua 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So they're viewing the whole land. They're they're, they're spying out the land, trying to get the lay of of what challenges are in front of them, especially Jericho, because he knew that would be the first flashpoint. That was going to be the first place that they were going to run into trouble. So the spies do that. And when they come to Jericho, they go and they um, identify the house of ill repute, (laughs) and that's where they decide to stay. Interesting choice, right? What, what, what were they doing, right? There's, there's no indication in the text that they were there for uh, anything but positive reasons. Why would they choose to go to a prostitute's house? Well, if you're going to go someplace and not want to be noticed, you want to go someplace that people don't like to look. The reality is that, that Rahab was an outsider. 
Rahab was, was somebody that, that people didn't want to see. They knew she was there, and, and, and she knew she, they knew she was part of society, but she was relegated to the outer circle. And if you want to stay undercover, it's very easy to disappear with those who are also outside of society and undercover, right? There's really not, nothing uncommon during this era for travelers when they first arrive to a city to go find lodging at a, at a prostitute's house. Um, people didn't like it necessarily, but it wasn't something that would raise alarm and, and, and it would draw no um, concern. And, and she would have no voice. So even if she was against them, it's not like she could do much damage to them, right? She was fairly powerless. Uh, she really didn't have a voice in society. And, and so they were fairly protected by trying to go there. Now, what's interesting is, is they went there to disappear, but um, that's not what happened. But before we get into that, let's talk, about, um, let's talk about Rahab for a moment. Rahab, we know, worked as a prostitute. It's the first thing the Bible tells us about Rahab. All right, they went to a prostitute's house named Rahab, she sold her body sexually for money. Now, what's ironic about this, you guys, is that Rahab was an untouchable in the society. You know, like Steve Cohen, man, she's a prostitute. I get that. But, but the thing with untouchables, you can touch an untouchable. You just can't do it with dignity. Untouchables get touched all the time. But it's never in a humanizing way. It's always to use, abuse, hurt, and dehumanize. So she had plenty of physical contact. That doesn't change her status as as an untouchable in that society. She was somebody that had um, become one of the abused, one of the used. um, And uh, we don't know exactly how she ended up in prostitution. Um, Very few people end up in that lifestyle by choice. Very few. Uh, it's usually through abuse, lack of options, closed doors, um, abuse, um, and previous dehumanization that leads to a path of, of self-degradation. So we don't know if she's there um, for whatever reason, but we know that's what she's doing. Um, we know that she is um, unmarried. We learn that from the text. And she's very unprotected, even though she has family. We know that her mom and her dad are still alive. Her father, who should be in that culture, standing up to protect her, is not. We don't know why. Maybe he is also completely disenfranchised for whatever reason. She has brothers and sisters. They, not, they are not standing up to protect her. And in fact, ironically, she becomes their protector. Over the course of the story, she's the one that, that brings them in, in a sense, and puts uh, a wing over them to protect them in a time of judgment. But at this point, she is completely unprotected. And we can even tell by the position of her house, how her culture feels about her. When you move to any area, um, one of the first things you do is look at the neighborhoods, right? Those of you who have had to relocate, you're looking at an apartment. You want to know what kind of apartment complex it's in, right? You want to know what kind of traffic is going in and out of there, right? Um, And that means you need to do a little bit of of, of research, right? Um, When the internet was... I don't know, it was a while ago, I I decided we're going to take a trip to Lexington, right? So I get on the internet and I'm going to find us the best motel deal in Lexington. And I do, it's a great price, right? Look great on the internet, right? The pictures of the lobby were lovely. We get there and we have drug dealers on both sides of us. Literally, we we move the bed to cover because we have people banging on the door in the middle of the night. And and it was, I got little kids, right? 
Last time I, yeah, I learned a lot about booking motels from that. You know, you, you don't go by the picture on the webpage, um, but you do your homework. If I'm going to locate somebody permanently or, or, or I'm going to move someplace permanently, I'm going to do a whole lot more homework than I did for a one-night stay, right? Why? Because we want to be in nice neighborhoods. We want to know what's the street like? What's the cul-de-sac like? What are the neighbors like? How much traffic is going through? People want to locate to as nice of a neighborhood as they can. It only makes sense. You want to enjoy your life right? I don't know if you've ever noticed, but generally hills attract wealth. (laughs) The higher the hill, the more expensive it is to live at the top. Um, And and a lot of these cities were in fact built around hills. And and what would end up happening is is the high rent districts were generally closer to the center, right? Up the hill. Around the outskirts, at the bottom of the hill, around the wall was the lowest rent district. Nobody wanted to live there. That's where all the traffic was. That's where all the noise was. That's where everything ran down the streets to. It was dirty, it was loud, and it was unsafe. And what would end up happening is the people in that society who didn't have any other options would build their houses against the wall. That would become their place of shelter. Her house, we find out, is in fact against the outer wall. In fact, her window looks out the city to the outside where she she ends up lowering the spies. And so she is literally and figuratively in the outer circle, on the outskirts of society. And um, as a result, and in everyone's perspective, she is as an, an individual um, untouchable, disrespected, invisible, powerless. So the spies go there because they want to cloak themselves under her invisibility in a sense, but it didn't work out that way. Um, there were obviously people watching the gates, people this time when, when this huge nomadic nation uh, wandered into Canaan, um, people in the cities were uh, like, holy cow, we heard about these guys. You know, they've, they've won a lot of battles out there wandering the last 40 years in the desert. We don't want them coming to our city. And so they were on the alert. And so when these two guys came into the city, somebody was there, spotted them. And take a look at verses two and three. It says, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. All right, so Rahab now finds herself um, in the crosshairs of danger. Um, Because she has those men in her house, she is in real danger. Now, I want you to consider the danger she's in. First of all, she's a woman in a culture that doesn't value women. She has absolutely no legal voice and no legal protection outside of that of her family, of a husband and a father. Um, She is isolated from both. And uh, so she has no legal standing. She has no legal voice. She can be abused. She can even be killed. So she has no protection. She has armed thugs coming to the the door. Uh, The the guard of the city um, were, were, you know, basically bouncers, right? These are guys that are are rough. They're violent um, and they're dangerous. And they come to her and, and um, they're like, you know, hey, we heard you have those two guys in the house, you know, spit them out. Now, somebody who, who had lived, in a sense, in that area of the city as an outcast, she no doubt learned certain self-preservation skills. We call those things street smarts. People who have lived on the street develop a certain level of intelligence about how to operate in that world that other people don't have. And in that um, world, what you learn is... is how to risk as little as possible for as great a benefit as possible. There's always risk because it's a dangerous place to be. But what you learn to do is risk as little as possible to gain as great of a benefit as possible. In this situation, there is absolutely no benefit to her. 
to do anything but give those spies up. Because if for any reason they think she actually had them, they will kill her. And they will likely kill her entire family. What makes sense for her is to deliver them up. Possibly, maybe even get some benefit from it because she would be the one, in a sense, saving the city. You know, So maybe there'd be a tip involved. Maybe there'd be some kind of benefit for her. It'd be the smallest risk, greatest benefit. But she does what is absolutely unexpected. She protects them. She puts herself in the place of danger so that they can escape it. And she knows she's risking her life. So why did she do it? We'll take a look at verses 4 through 7. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So she risks her life. She protects them. Was this a calculated risk? Was this her basically saying, you know what? I'm looking out there. I see out my window. You know, there's a lot of people out there. That nomadic people called Israel. I mean, they might be able to take this city out. Uh, So I'm going to just take a calculated risk. I'm going to roll the die uh, and and hope that it pays off. Is that what it is? This is her basically saying, I'm afraid of them more than I'm afraid of the people in here. Uh, So that is going to be the best risk payoff scenario. Um, The answer is no. And, And it actually becomes clear as she talks to the spies. We find her motivation for actually preserving them. I'm not going to read the whole conversation, but we just read it. And, and you realize that she's talking a lot about, man, people's hearts are melting when they think about you. We know what you did to Sihon. And we know what you did to Og. We, we, I don't know who they were, but bad news for them, right? Israel apparently stomped them pretty good. And, and as a result, man, they gained this reputation. And so people were afraid of them. Um, and, and, and if you read this just really shallowly, you could come away thinking she's just afraid, right? I'm more afraid of you than I am of my own people. But what's interesting is that all the way through this text, pay attention to the way she talks about God. Um, For example, if you take a look at um, verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. That word Lord, I want you to notice that it's in all caps. Do you see that? It's lower, it's little, but it's in all caps. That's a translator's way of telling you that that's actually God's covenant name being used there. In the ancient texts, the scribes thought it was too sacred to actually write the name of Yahweh. So they wouldn't write the name of Yahweh. They would use the Hebrew word for Lord and substitute it when they were writing. The English writers, in our translations, in order to carry that over so that we know when the the covenant name of God is being used, they use all caps like that. So what she's saying is, I know Yahweh went ahead of you. Now, it's interesting that she would use God's covenant name, and not just once, but throughout the conversation. Because what that means is that she's not just talking about your God. She's not just talking about a God. We know there's a God with you, that your God goes ahead of you, that your God is big and powerful. What she's saying is, I know there is the God. And he goes by the name of Yahweh. And he has made a covenant with you, and he goes before you. And you're winning because he's winning. Catch what's going on. It's a subtle difference. She's not afraid of Israel. She's afraid of God. 
But her fear isn't an unhealthy fear that causes her to run away. Instead, it's actually a healthy fear that causes her to draw near for mercy, right? Right there in verse um, 11 and 12, she identifies who God is. She says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in us. Why? Because the Lord, your God, Yahweh, he is the God of heaven above and of the earth beneath. I know that he is the one true God. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, so also deal kindly with me and my family's house. Her appeal to them is not based on their strength, but on God's. She doesn't come to them like a kid on the playground saying, look, if you're nice to me, I'll give you candy. If you protect me, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, wash your bike or whatever, right? She's not manipulating. She's not squirming. She's not groveling. She's actually coming to them in strength and saying, I know you're strong because of your God. Now swear to your God that you will protect me because he's my God too. I want to follow Yahweh. So you are under obligation. She's standing, catch, she's standing strong in the face of threat. Now, you guys, <clears throat> this is actually, I think, in some ways crazier and even braver than what she did with the guards who came to her house. I mean, it was brave for her to stand up to the guards and say, the spies aren't here. It was even braver for her to go to the spies and say, you have to protect me. Think about it. What would be worse on the playground? What would be harder? To fight a kid? Or to ask a kid who doesn't like you to be your friend? I'm going to find it a whole lot easier to fight him. If I lose, the worst you're going to do is hurt my body. But if you reject me, you can hurt my heart. She is coming and saying, I belong inside. I belong in the inner circle. Because there is a circle that's not defined by who I am or what I've done. She is a Gentile woman a prostitute, an outcast from her own society, looking at men from Israel and saying to them, I belong inside. That is a radical statement of confident faith. I will not be dehumanized. I will not be left out. And you will protect me because I'm not afraid of you. I'm afraid of your God. And I know you are too. Not in a groveling way, but in a healthy way. Yours is the God of heaven and earth, and he's my God as well. This is an incredible statement of faith. In faith, she's putting on the cloak of courage. See, it looks like she's just being brave, but what I want you to see is that, in fact, it's not just bravery. It's faith acting behind the cloak of courage. See, faith basically says, I'm convinced that God is powerful and goes ahead of me. And so I stand in that faith and I move forward in that faith and it gives me a confidence to do what I would otherwise be afraid to do. And and it looks like courage and it is in fact courage, but it's actually at its root, not courage, but faith because it's a confidence rooted in a strength outside of myself, not a confidence in myself. She is standing strong, but not her in her strength, in God's. She's not standing on her record. She's standing in the name 
of Yahweh, the covenant God. So what's the result of this? The result is that God blesses Rahab. The end of the story. And you don't see this, but when you get to Joshua 6, um, the marching band comes, they sing, they clap, they shout, the walls fall down, right? <clears throat> but not her part of the wall. Her part of the wall is preserved. And she and all of her family are brought out safely. And in fact, they're not just brought out safely, they are integrated into the nation of Israel. They understood that their obligation was not simply to preserve her life. Because she was a follower of Yahweh, she had a place in the people of God. Regardless of her background, regardless of what she had done or who she, she whatever. So they integrated her. In fact, in Joshua chapter 6, um, Joshua, the, the author of the book, says, you guys know as well as I do, Rahab abides among us to this day. She's still living. She's still here in uh, uh, our society, right? So she is, she is uh, preserved, and she is blessed with a new identity, a new family, a new nation. And in fact, that blessing is so complete that it completely wipes out her past. She's no longer Rahab the harlot. In fact, she remarries or marries for the first time um, to an Israelite, a guy named Salmon, right? I don't know who Salmon is. Uh, I don't know a lot about Salmon, but apparently he's a pretty good guy, right? He marries Rahab, and they have a son. And some of you are going to recognize the son's name. The son's name is Boaz. Now, some of you know that because last year we studied the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, it was another story about a woman who was an outcast that was, that was marginalized and dehumanized. And, and she was Ruth the Moabitess, right? Ruth the outsider. And she came to Israel. And who was the man who stood up for her? Who was the man who protected her? Who was the man that redeemed her and ultimately married her? It was Boaz. And I can't help but think that Boaz's behavior with Ruth was influenced by his being raised by Rahab. And Boaz and, and Ruth had a son. His name was Obed. And Obed ended up having a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son by the name of David. And David became the greatest king of Israel. He's the one who faced Goliath. He's the one that took the place of Saul. He's the one that wrote most of the book of Psalms. He is one of the great figures of Old Testament history. In fact, we're going to talk about him next week. He's our subject for next week. Rahab was King David's great-great-grandmother. So God didn't just honor her by protecting her. God didn't just honor her by giving her a new identity and a new husband. He honored her by actually bringing her into the royal line. And it gets even better than that, because if you follow that line out far enough, guess who you find? Jesus himself. In fact, when you come to Matthew in the New Testament, Matthew traces Jesus' lineage, his genealogy, and he names four women in that genealogy, one of whom is Rahab. Another one is Ruth. I love that. And then there's Tamar, and, and then there's Bathsheba. You see a theme there if you know those stories. Four women who were abused, dehumanized, marginalized, but God delighted to make his name great by honoring them. So Rahab was given a great blessing, not just physical life, but um, a restoration of joy and a great future, a future that um, ultimately she could have never given herself. I can't help. You guys, I use this phrase a lot. God will tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. This is not the story Rahab would have told for her life. 
But I guarantee you, God's story for her was better than the one she would have told for herself. So she's blessed. Rahab, the outsider, became Rahab, the ultimate insider. Rahab, the one with with no dignity, with no power, with no voice, with no name, became Rahab, the woman of faith. The great-great-grandmother of David in the lineage of Jesus himself. So let's make some observations as we consider how this impacts us, as we consider how this story influences our lives and how we approach life. Tons of applications could be made. Um, I just want to go through a series of three. The first is that God doesn't measure worth like we do. And believer, you can't remind yourself of this too often. God does not measure worth like we do. We draw circles of value. God draws those circles very, very differently. And just because we're inside the circle we've drawn doesn't mean we're okay. And just because others are outside of the circle we've drawn does not mean that they're not. You know, what's interesting is when I first noticed when I was a believer and I started reading the New Testament and I came in Matthew and I came across those names. I didn't know who they were, Rahab and Ruth, um, Tamar. I went ahead and started doing some reading, and I was like, holy cow. Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot, is actually listed in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. What a great honor for her, right? What a a gracious God we have that that he would list her. And it's really radical when you consider that, that Matthew had no motivation to list her. When Matthew wrote his gospel during that period of time, Women still had no voice in society. Their, their word carried no weight in court. They, they were disenfranchised and disempowered, okay? For him to list those four women in that genealogy didn't do anything to win over his Jewish readers <laughs> or, or the skeptics. He was I purposely identifying Jesus with people that their society rejected, right? So I read that. And I'm like, holy cow, what a gracious God. And then it dawned on me. But even that thought revealed my pride. Why would it shock me that Rahab would be in that list? You know why? Because I've drawn a circle. And in that circle, I'm okay. I'm not a prostitute. Never have been. Wow, God is so gracious to honor even her. (laughs) What that shows me is that in my heart, I am deeply, deeply prideful and broken. The fact that Rahab is listed in the lineage of Christ, we we shouldn't be shocked by the fact that she's in that list. We should be shocked that anyone's in that list. We should be shocked that God did what he did, sending his son to be born in the line of a broken and sinful humanity, people like me who have deeply broken hearts, sinful tendencies, a desire to exalt myself and debase others. And yet God chose to associate himself by being born a man. See, the beauty of Rahab being in that line is that there is hope that I can be in that line. If Rahab is in that circle, then maybe, maybe, maybe there's hope for me. 
Not because I'm better than her, but because she needed grace. And I need grace. See, here's the deal, you guys. God loves to touch the untouchable. God loves to hear those who have no voice. God loves to give dignity to those who have none from their world and their culture. He loves to see, like really see, like look in the face and be fully present with those that are invisible to others. God doesn't value worth like we do. He doesn't measure it in the same way. He recognizes that we are all a glorious ruin. That every single one of us were created in the image of God and we bear that image. It is an image of dignity, of glory, of beauty, but it is a glorious ruin because every single one of us are born separated and broken from God because of our sin. Sin we've inherited from our very first parents and sin we have chosen. And so it is the image of God, but marred by the image of man. And God has purposed to restore the glory by removing the ruin. God does not measure worth like we do. He gives worth. And what that means is that God doesn't measure success. He measures faith. Again, something we need to remind ourselves of on a regular basis. God does not measure us by our success. He measures us by our faith. You know, that it's incredibly easy to slide into that thinking that, that God loves me more when I do well. If I could just be more self-disciplined, if I could just be more focused, if I could just be more productive, if I could just be less self-indulgent, sinful, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, then God would love me more. Then I would be worth more, right? Don't we, it's not just our relationship with God, we do this everywhere. If I could just be more successful at work, if my kids would just be better behaved, if, if people in restaurants would compliment my family, if, if I could just look better, act better, drive something better, then I would be worth something more. It's a completely wrong way of measuring success, and in fact, it has more to do with karma than with grace. See, karma is that idea that, that you get what you sow, which, which is true. There is an element of truth there that is absolutely real. But God doesn't operate with us on the basis of karma. If he did, we would all be damned. God operates with us on grace. God does not value us more for our success or value us less for our failure. We are not more worthwhile as people if we are successful businessmen or students or, or make more money or are self, more self-disciplined or, or paragons of, of self-control. God loves us infinitely. Not because we deserve it, but because he's chosen to. And in that choice, he's given up his best. See, what's the deal works? We believe in Jesus. As a gift, he gives us worth. He gives us Jesus' glory, Jesus' value, Jesus' goodness. It's ours. It's a gift. We call that imputation. 
That's the big $10 theological word. It simply means that it's reckoned to our account. It is, it is shifted. Our sin is shifted to the account of Christ. Christ dies for it, pays for it completely, and everything that is good about him is shifted to our account, and we are covered with that worth. He gives us our worth as a gift. And here's the deal, you guys. He measures our success, not by our ability to wor- earn our worth, but by our ability to walk in faith. I want you to catch the difference. We never go down in worth, but we can go up in success. It's a paradigm shift. It's not about us working for God's favor. It's about us working from God's favor. Because God delights in me and Jesus, I will move forward in faith. Because the God of the universe is for me and and is working through me, I will move forward in confidence, even in situations in which I am helpless or completely unable to do what God's asking me to do. I will still move forward in confidence. Not because I need to earn his favor, but because I already have it. I have worth. God is now asking me to be faithful with that worth, to move forward in the confidence of faith and to grow. God isn't looking for you to be worthy. He's looking for you to be faithful. Because your worth comes from Christ. And and here's the last thing that comes out of that. It means that the reward of following God is always greater than the risk. The reward that comes from following God is always greater than the risk. The reality is, you guys, we've all become street smart on a spiritual level. What I mean by that is, is we're always calculating risk and reward. What, what, what is the risk and what is the benefit? If I make friends with this person, how much is it going to cost me? How much emotional capital? How much of my time? How much of my energy? How much of my finances? And what's the benefit that comes out of that? If, if I follow God at work and actually stand up for what is honest and true and right, what is the risk and what is the reward? What's that going to cost me? In an academic setting, if I actually state what I believe, what is the risk and what is the reward? And the reason is because on a spiritual level, we've all learned to self-protect and self-promote. Street smarts. We've learned to protect ourselves from risks that are too great and to promote ourselves when the, risks, when the, when the risk-benefit ratio is different. If it's a small risk with a great benefit, we go for it and we call it faith. And when the risk is too great and the perceived benefit is too small, we pull back and we call it common sense. Neither one of those are faith. Not in God. Both of those are faith and self. That is us playing God and evaluating. When is it worthwhile to follow and when is it not? When is the risk worth it and when is it not? If Rahab had run her decision through that paradigm, bad news would have ensued. Because there was no perceived, she was taking all the risk. But see, because she was driven by faith, it allowed her to see that there was a God that was going ahead of her and it wasn't her job to evaluate the risk, it was her job to follow, which is an incredibly different thing. It's not about me deciding when the risk is worthwhile and when the benefit is going to outweigh it. It is my job to figure out what is God asking me to do. And if he's asking me to do it, how do I not do it? Because he's the God of power and the God of mercy, the God who created heaven and earth, the God who goes ahead of me. The God who will tell a better story for my life than I would tell for myself. 
and I will be able to stand in courage, but that courage will in fact simply be faith, confidence that God is with me and ahead of me. See, faith calls us to throw ourselves boldly into God's protection so that he will care, promote for us. All right, so where's Jesus in this? The name of our series is, is Shadows of Christ, right? And we're talking about how Jesus shows up in these Old Testament stories. And um, honestly, when you're looking at Rahab, I see more, more clearly in this part of the story a shadow of our part, <laughs> right? Um, it's like when you look at the story of God, we're in there. It's just our part's not very attractive. That, that's the part that I see being played out in this story is, is the flip side. They're, they're, it, we see the people that need to be rescued. We need to pe- see the people that need to be dignified and restored. And we see ourselves in that, that we are, in fact, Rahab. We are the prostitutes, the ones that have sold our souls out to false gods um, to try to get from those things what only God can give. And the beauty of the fact that, that we can be rescued. But I think Jesus is in the story. Um, and I love this little bit. <laughs> I think you see Jesus in that little red piece of yarn. Do you remember what the spies said? They said, look, man, when we come to the city, we need to know which room you're in. So we want you to take a red piece of yarn and tie it and hang it out of your window. That little red piece of yarn was what stood between them and God's judgment on that city. That little red piece of yarn became their shield in the day of trial. That little red piece of yarn reminds me of what God asked Israel to do in Egypt when the 10th plague came and and they were still slaves. And God said, look, I'm going to get you out of here, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the angel of death and he's going to take the the firstborn life of everyone in the nation. For you to be protected, I want you to kill a lamb, the perfect lamb, and I want you to put that blood above your doorpost. And when the angel of death comes, he will pass over your house. And judgment will not visit your family because judgment instead visited your substitute, the lamb. I love it that Rahab is protected in the same exact way. What we see here is an image of Jesus. The one who knew no sin, who became sin for us. The one who was our substitute in judgment so that we could join him in blessing. He was the red yarn. He was the lamb that was slain. He was the perfect substitute for the sin of humanity. He lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we deserved to die so that he could stand between us and judgment. So that once we were inside of him, of our identity with him, of of being adopted into his family by the price that he paid, we were absolutely, completely, totally secure. I want to invite you this morning, if you're not a believer in Christ, to believe. There's absolutely nothing that stands between you and being on inside with God other than your lack of faith. The one thing God asks of us is that we believe. And in believing, everything that Christ has won for us is given to us and everything that we hate is taken from us. And we're adopted into the family and brought into the circle. And I know some of you are like, man, when I'm worthy, I'll get my life together, I'll get these things in order, and then... (laughs) That's karma. That's not grace. You can never get your life in good enough order. You can never get everything lined up. You can never make yourself worthy. That's the beauty of the story. You don't have to. That's why Christ had to die. 
so you could be forgiven, so that when he rose again a new life, it would secure for you a new life with God. I invite you to believe. And as believers, I invite you to walk boldly in that faith. In whatever area God is asking you to be faithful, where is God challenging you to put on courage driven by faith? Where is he asking you to boldly follow him, even if it makes no sense? And why wouldn't you follow? So it's a call to faith. I think that's what we get from Rahab. And that's why she is in the New Testament, no longer called Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. In Hebrews 11, she is in what we call the hall of fame of faith. She is Rahab, the woman of faith.